you know, the mind boggles, right? Why are you in this business? And um, these are profit-driven companies. You know, some, some drug companies hang up on the wall. Quality is the most important thing. Never compromise quality. Rembaxi was a company that had the profit goals for the company hanging up on the wall so that every employee knew that the company's number one priority was to reach, you know, a billion in global sales by a certain date. And that creates a very different set of behaviors. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science in the Public. Maybe you've got allergies, or you've got that cold that's been going around. Maybe you take medication for your depression or anxiety. Maybe you need blood pressure medicine or pills for your cholesterol. Whatever it is, you go to the pharmacy to get it, and, oh, medicine is hideously expensive these days. If you're lucky, though, maybe there's a generic on offer. Maybe it even costs a tenth of the original price, and it's supposed to be exactly the same. Exactly the same drug at a fraction of the price. How do you know? The government told you so. How does the government know? And how much should we trust what's in our pills, brand name, generic, or otherwise? Hold on to your pill bottles, my friends. Today, I'm here with Catherine Eben. She's an investigative journalist, contributor to Fortune magazine, and has written for Vanity Fair, The New York Times, and many other outlets. She is also the author of Bottle of Lies, the inside story of the generic drug boom. Catherine, thank you so much for being here with us. It's a pleasure to chat with you. We've got a lot to cover here, but I actually wanted to start with a little bit of background information that I actually did not know until I read this book, Generic Drugs. What is up with them? Why is there a name brand that's expensive? And then years later, a generic that's cheap. How does that work? Right. So brand name companies are also known as innovator companies. So they invent a drug and a drug is essentially a molecule with a delivery system around it, which ends up being a pill or a capsule or an injectable. Um, so they invent a drug, they sell it for a certain number of years. Um, it's under patent and it, that means that the intellectual property, uh, is protected. But, uh, along come generic drug companies. They want to make a version of that drug and sell it at a low cost. Uh, so they can do a couple of things. They can challenge the patent in court and they may win or lose, or they can wait for the patent to expire. Then they can apply to a regulator, in this case, the FDA, uh, to get permission to sell their version. Now, is their version identical? It's not actually. And one misconception is that the brand company simply hands over the recipe to a generic company and there is a peaceful transfer of intellectual property. It's more like a war. The brand company tries to prevent the generic company from prevailing in court. They surround their drug with multiple patents, separate patents for the time release formulation for each manufacturing step. So what generic companies have to do is take the drug into a laboratory and reverse engineer it, figure out how to make it themselves. They may use different additional ingredients, which are called excipients. Um, the time release formulation may be different. The molecule has to be the same and the form of the drug, whether it's a pill, a capsule, or an injectable has to be the same. Now, the FDA recognizes that this is not going to be an identical copy. So what they say is your drug has to be bioequivalent. That means it has to operate roughly the same way in the body. And they have stipulated a range, which is surprisingly large, which is the drug has to fall um, within 20% below or 25% above the absorption of the drug into the bloodstream. That's a sizable range. What that means is if you're switched between different generics at the pharmacy or from a brand to generic, you may be getting a drug that, while the FDA says it's clinically equivalent, may actually function slightly differently. And that's sort of where this, this story begins. 
I, so this part completely floored me. I, just, I, I guess I never thought about generic drugs and that the company making a generic drug is a totally different company from the company that invented and marketed the name brand version of this. Um, you mentioned they basically have to take the drug and reverse engineer it. If the brand name company isn't giving away their secrets, how does that happen? How do they get this drug and reverse engineer it? And why is it done this way? Why is why are there so many protections around this around these drug formulas? Well, you know, the brand name company has made a huge investment in developing and testing and manufacturing a drug. So their goal is to keep it on the market exclusively for as long as possible. And of course, the generic company, their goal is to get their low cost version on the market as soon as possible. And they actually have some pretty powerful allies in doing that. So in the US, it's the United States Congress and the American people, because we have very poor uh, price regulation. People really have a hard time affording brand name drugs. So everybody is sort of rooting for the generic to come on the market as soon as possible. And I was really stunned by this, that, you know, you're talking about this, you know, the generic drugs have to kind of, the companies have to reverse engineer the drug, it has to work in a roughly bioequivalent way. But in fact, generic drugs, there weren't so many on the market until about 1984. Um, Why was that the case? So, Prior to 1984, the requirement for launching a generic drug was identical to launching a brand name drug, which is you had to prove the safety and efficacy of the drug. And in order to do that, you had to launch huge, expensive clinical trials and present all the data from those trials to the FDA. So obviously, for generic companies, there was just this giant expense and protracted uh, method for getting your drugs on the market. But that changed in 1984 with a bill called the Hatch-Waxman Act. And what that gave the generic companies was a separate pathway to apply to the FDA to launch a generic drug. The FDA said, you know what? We recognize that safety and efficacy of a molecule has already been studied and proven by the brand. So generic companies, you're only going to have to do limited uh, clinical studies like on two dozen healthy volunteers to test your drug. And you're going to have to do a bunch of laboratory studies like stability and dissolution to show us that your drug um is a stable, safe drug without toxic impurities in it. Uh, And you're going to have to show us this bioequivalence data, which is to show that it falls within the stipulated range. Um, So this was, you know, a, a game changer for generic companies. Suddenly they had a separate pathway for applying to the FDA to launch their drugs. Um, But the Hatch-Waxman Act did one other thing which is it gave them a major financial incentive that was called first to file. What that said is the first generic company that puts down its application at the FDA or successfully challenges the uh, brand name company in court and gets approved is going to have six months of exclusivity on the U.S. market before other generic drug makers come in. So this was the difference between making a living and making a fortune. First to file became where it was all at. And just to give you a sense of how lucrative that was, for example, um, an Indian drug company called Rambaxi had a first to file for generic Lipitor. So they were the first into the U.S. market with a generic version in six months, they made $600 million. Yikes. But I also wanted to ask, you know, we were talking about the hatch wax mat. This is, um, these are acts of Congress in the United States. Mm-hmm. This was a U.S. bill. Were there mm-hmm. global repercussions 
of this kind of new market for generics because it did create, you know, this big incentive and many more generics started coming on the market because of the potential for that six months exclusivity. Did that have repercussions around the world? Well, not exactly at first. There were other factors that had sort of bigger repercussions. Uh, but what was clear is that it launched the generic drug market in the U.S. It grew very quickly. Um, and so I think for companies looking around the world, they were like, there is a huge market that we can enter now. How do we do that? Um, so you also mentioned that, you know, the FDA requires functional equivalence. And I'm putting that in, in air quotes, functional equivalence. Um, and things will not be exactly equivalent because they're literally reverse engineering these drugs. Right. Um, how does the government attempt to assure this functional equivalence if these drugs are being reverse engineered and also not necessarily uh, tested in large clinical populations? Right. Well, what they're saying is that so long as it meets this target of absorption into the blood, that that drug will then be clinically equivalent for a patient. Uh, but I will say that doctors have raised a lot of questions about these standards because in, um, in medical um, uh, sort of fields where precise dosing is very important, such as neurology, endocrinology, cardiology, psychiatry, tiny little differences in dosing make a clinical difference. And so some of these doctors have contended that the FDA standards, even when everything is going according to plan, do not actually result in the same effect for their patients. I wanted to pursue that because we're going to be talking most particularly about one particular company, the company that was kind of the subject of your book, Ranbaxi. Um, they are a generic company uh, based in India. How did they come to your attention? Because it has to do with these slight differences in effect. Well, I started reporting this, this topic about whether there was something wrong with generic drugs. That question was first posed to me by a radio show host named Joe Graydon, who has an NPR radio program called The People's Pharmacy. He had contacted me to say that patients were inundating his program, his email, with complaints about their generics and complaints about side effects or lack of effect. Um, the question he posed to me is, what is wrong with the drugs? I started looking into this, looking at the FDA standards, interviewing patients, talking to doctors. But as I was doing that, I heard about this company, Ranbaxy. It was India's largest drug company. It was the fastest growing generic company in the U.S., generic drug company. But I was hearing that there might be a investigation by the FDA and by the government into this company for what are called data integrity violations. So <clears throat> data is what the FDA uses to approve a drug, right? They're looking at data that these companies submit and the data shows the drug is bioequivalent, the, the drug is stable, the drug is safe to take. Um, there was a question about whether there was some manipulation of this data. And my understanding was the government was poking around. And most people, I mean, I certainly, until I read your book, I had never heard of Ranbaxy. Um, <laughs> and because <laughs> Where I, had I? Well, you, you know, you don't, I, I don't know. I just never turned the bottle around and, <laughs> and looked. Um, and I, I think, you know, can you name a few of the drugs that Ranbaxy was involved in that people might be familiar with? Because I think, you know, people kind of know their drugs, but a lot of them don't necessarily even know the companies that manufacture the brand names. Right. So, I mean, Rebaxi was selling really as many drugs as you can think of, dozens and dozens of them, blood pressure medications, 
um, cholesterol medications. Uh, they sold a drug called Sotret, which is an acne drug, um, which is the generic version of Accutane. Um, really, in every sort of clinical uh, strata, they had a generic for it. And I actually wanted to pursue Sotret because one of the reasons this particular drug company, Ranbaxi, ended up making such big headlines was kind of because of the failures of two generic versions of name brand drugs. And one of them was Sotret, which is the generic of Accutane. This is that acne drug that if anyone took it as a teenager and you were a woman, I think they actually just have this on everything, but the Accutane pack has a little like no pregnancy label Mm-hmm. On the back of the Accutane, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that drug, there is a generic of it. What happened with Sotret? Right. So um, Accutane is uh, what what we call in the U.S. a black box drug, which means it comes with a very serious warning. And in this case, the warning was um, pregnant women can't take it because of um, potential miscarriages, and it can create suicidality in teenagers. And of course, teenagers are the ones who take acne drugs. So it is, it's a pretty scary drug. Um, So Rambaxi um, was first to the market with a generic version of Sotret, of Accutane. Um, They launched it onto the market. But meanwhile, inside the company, they knew that their formulation was failing, uh, that the, the formulation was unstable. It had dissolution problems. Uh, but their, their, that concern was weighed against the concern that if they pulled it from, if they told the FDA about it and they pulled it from the market, there was a competitor right behind them, Bar Laboratories, who would then get their version onto the market. And so they did really an unthinkable thing. They kept, kept it on the market. They concealed the problems from the FDA. And while they were selling it, they went back into the laboratory to try to figure out how to make the formulation work. Um, and all of this was memorialized in an internal document with a cover sheet that said in big letters, do not share with FDA. Which is just very, like, if you're gonna, if you're gonna commit crimes, if you're gonna do crimes, <laughs> you would think you would hide those crimes a little better than a big cover sheet that says, don't show this to the FDA. <laughs> well, you know, that is often the undoing of criminals, right? Uh, uh, is a ham-handed effort to destroy evidence. And in fact, um, you know, fast forward, uh, about five years when the FDA served a search warrant at uh, Rambaxi's New Jersey headquarters, that is one of the documents they extracted from an executive's desk with the uh, big cover letters, do not share with FDA, which of course we would call a clue <laughs> as to what was going on inside the company. And that was one of the drugs, Sotret, but another one actually um, really you know, caught attention because of the incredible number of these drugs that are, are, you know, supplied. It is the generic of the brand name drug Lipitor. Um, can you talk about how Ranbaxy attempted to get the generic of Lipitor and what happened? Yeah. So, uh, you know, within the generic world, the first to file for um, Lipitor or Atorvastatin, as the generic is known, was an incredible race. It was widely recognized as the most lucrative drug uh, in generic history. And um, Rambaxi was first to the FDA with its application. So they had a first file. But at the same time, uh, remarkable allegations of wrongdoing inside Rambaxi came to the FDA's attention. So they launch a criminal investigation into this company at the same time that the company is in line to launch generic Lipitor. 
And there was this really remarkable internal debate inside the FDA, which I was able to chronicle in my book through internal emails that went something like this. This company is saturated in fraud. Um, we have serious doubts about whether this application for generic Lipitor is fraudulent. Um, however, if we don't let this company launch this drug, um, they may not make enough money to pay the giant fine that we're going to impose on them for engaging in fraud. Uh, and so the long and the short of it was the U.S. government allowed Rambaxi to go ahead and launch generic Lipitor. They made $600 million. And within one year, millions of, um, of atorvastatin uh, tablets had to be recalled because they were suffused with glass particles. So it was a giant manufacturing fail. It was a financial success for Rambaxi. And it was a really dubious judgment call from the FDA because they knew that this company had engaged in fraud. Now, you mentioned that the FDA had suspicions of fraud and they, you know, they were getting hints that something was wrong. Mm -hmm. How did they, how did they find this out? Right. So, um, the book chronicles the story of a man named Dinesh Tucker. He was a young engineer at Bristol-Myers Squibb. Um, he was recruited by Rambaxi to go and become a kind of information architect for the company and map all of the company's global filings. He moves his family to India and he there's a lot of turmoil uh, and upheaval at Rambaxi. His mentor who brought him in leaves the company and is replaced with a new boss, a very sort of elegant, smart, and ethical executive from GlaxoSmithKline who moves from England. His name is Raj Kumar. And Kumar begins to get suspicions that some of Rambaxi's data filings are false. Um, now, it, wherever the company wants to launch a drug, let's say they want to sell a drug into Brazil or into Vietnam or into the U.S., what they have to do is file a dossier with the regulators in that country, right? Here's our data, here's our drug, and we want permission to sell the drug. So Raj Kumar gives Dinesh Thakur, the young engineer, an assignment. Take your whole data team, investigate every global regulatory filing that Rambaxi has made, and give me a report as to whether the data is real or fake. So Dinesh Thakur starts this remarkable assignment, and what he discovers is that in many countries around the globe, there is no data. The company has made up data to show that it has tested its drugs and just submitted it to regulators. Meanwhile, back in the labs, it hasn't done the proper testing. So Dinesh Thakur assembles a report. It's a PowerPoint. And basically what it says is, for over 200 products in more than 40 countries, the data is fabricated. This is a giant smoking gun. So Raj Kumar at that point, who has been at the company for only four months, presents this to a subcommittee of the board of directors and basically says, either we clean this up, we confess to the regulators, we pull these drugs from the market and we test them properly or I leave. The board's response is, we're going to destroy. Uh, we're going to destroy this PowerPoint. We're going to destroy the laptop on which it was created, and we're burying this information. Kumar leaves. Tucker is forced out of the company, and he can't sleep at night. He's just thinking about these drugs. He's thinking about the millions of patients around the world who are taking the drugs, and so he uh, sets up a. Uh, an email account under a pseudonym 
and he starts writing to the world's regulatory agencies. And Visa in Brazil, EMA in Europe, uh, the World Health Organization, the FDA, and he starts alerting them to the fact that there is a crime going on at Rambaxi. Uh, and it is through doing that that he gets in dialogue with the U.S. FDA, and they ultimately launch a criminal investigation, and Tucker becomes a protected whistleblower. And you mentioned, I mean, there, there's so much in here that is just shocking <laughs> and <laughs> in, enraging, um, but you mentioned that you found out these investigations were going on, and the FDA was conducting these investigations. And at the same time, they approved the sale of generic Lipitor because they wanted Renbaxi to make money so they could charge a fine for their wrongdoing. What, what ended up happening here? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is insane. I mean, the the investigation into Rambaxi went on for eight years. And in the course of that investigation, the FDA is there approving one Rambaxi drug after another. They know this company is fraudulent. They know they have this PowerPoint document, which Tucker provided to them. There's a search warrant and a full criminal investigation, and they continue to approve drugs. Um, you know, why? Well, they're, they're under pressure from Congress to make more cheap drugs available. They're concerned that if Rambaxi has a first to file and they pull that application and don't let Rambaxi launch, then there will be lawsuits and other generic companies won't be able to launch. They're trying to weigh the risk of harm to the public against, you know, all of the legal permutations. They end up even going to inspect the plant where Rambaxi is proposing on making the generic Lipitor. They find a shredder on the factory floor, which tells them that they are destroying records, which you're not supposed to do in a drug plant. You're supposed to maintain all your data. I mean, there was smoke coming out of every window. And somehow the FDA, which is supposed to be the you know world's gold standard in regulatory excellence, uh, cannot figure out how to stop this company from making drugs. They did, though, in the end, right? I mean, in, in the end, there there was a there was a fine, right? <laughs> so fast forward to 2013. Rambaxi pleads guilty to seven felonies related to the falsification of data. Um, no executives were punished. No one was sent to jail. Uh, but they paid a $500 million fine and uh, they pled guilty. The company did. I, I just, $500 million is a lot of zeros. But Honestly, that's a slap on the wrist. I, I, in terms of just, you know, the billions of dollars that are thrown around by drug companies now, why, why was it so relatively small? Why did it fall out this way? One of the things I chronicle in the book was these internal deliberations over how to bring Rambaxi to justice. And when the negotiations began, you know, the numbers that they were talking about for all of the harm that Rambaxi did to patients for all the lies and deception was around $2 billion, you know, and over the course of years, that number just got whittled down. But there was a, an additional problem with bringing Rambaxi to justice, which is its corporate headquarters are 7,000 miles away in India. And the U.S. has no jurisdiction there. So this is really the entire problem with a global drug supply, is we are relying for life-saving medicine on companies that are operating in countries where we don't have jurisdiction. There, We don't have a U.S. attorney uh, in India. We can't serve a search warrant in India. Can we even 
uh, extradite witnesses? Can we get documents? You know, and this was one of the problems that the FDA was facing is how do you bring a bad actor to justice when they're headquartered in a country where we have no authority? That is actually a great segue because (laughs) one of the issues that you emphasize a lot in the book um, is that the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration inspections, they're not the same in the United States as they are overseas. Um, and, you know, there are, there are reasons for that, but how, how are these inspections and kind of, how is the oversight different? Right. I mean, this was really, to me, one of the remarkable things that emerged from my reporting. So in the U.S., uh, FDA investigators, as they are called, uh, inspect manufacturing plants roughly every two years. And to do that, they show up unannounced and pretty much stay as long as is necessary. Um, Overseas, the entire dynamic is different. They pre-announce their inspections. They give companies about uh, two months advance notice that they're coming, but the whole dynamic is different. Uh, In some of the documents that I obtained, they're asking the companies, can we come? In two months' time, will you invite us? The plants then invite the investigators. They send them an invitation letter, which the investigators then use to get visas. The FDA then says to these companies, can you arrange ground transportation? Can you arrange hotel accommodations? So suddenly, FDA investigators are showing up in India Luxury vehicles are meeting them at the airport. Their hotel rooms are upgraded. They're being taken on golf outings and massages and trips to the Taj Mahal. Um, You know, it's a system that one source uh, called regulatory tourism, right? Meanwhile, since the companies have had two months advance notice, um, they will send data fabrication teams into these plants to not to manufacture drugs, but to manufacture documents. Uh, So in one instance, a plant uh, invented these standard operating procedures that they were supposed to have. And to make them look old, they steamed them in a room overnight um, to make the documents look like they'd always been there. You know, they will shred documents. They will backdate them. Um, So it is this sort of elaborate artifice. And the end result is that the inspections are essentially staged. You know, they are not a real representation of what is going on in these plants. And you mentioned that they basically the FDA goes to these companies and says, hi, can we get an invite and uses that to apply for a visa? Why? Why is it that way? Why can't FDA inspectors just waltz in? Well, they can. Uh, they actually can. The The rules don't prevent them from doing that. Um, you know, any, co- any uh, plant that wants to sell drugs into our market has to give the FDA access. And denying or refusing an inspection would basically lead to us saying, sorry, you know, if, if you're refusing an inspection, you can't sell your drugs into our market. So, um, you know, the FDA could do this, but for diplomatic reasons, they choose not to. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So when you say diplomatic reasons, you mean the countries in which those companies are located might get busy if you waltz into their company. Right. And, you know, apparently, I mean, one of the things that emerged from my reporting is that sometimes it seems like the FDA is more fearful of an international incident, then it is fearful of U.S. citizens getting bad or contaminated drugs. And it's not just U.S. citizens. One of the things that was especially horrifying to me was uh, the section in your book that talks about how different countries are receiving different quality drugs. U.S. people are receiving bad drugs, but they are receiving the best of the bad drugs. Can you talk about some of the differences between what countries are receiving. Yeah. So this was really remarkable to me, which is 
you know, I assumed before I started this reporting that a drug is a drug, right? If you buy Lipitor in the U.S. or you buy Lipitor in India, it's the same. Um, but not so, because it turns out that these companies are adjusting the quality of the drugs depending on the vigilance of the regulators in the countries that they're selling into. So, yes, they're assuming that U.S. regulators are more vigilant than African regulators, than Indian regulators. And so for countries where they know that no one is going to check, they will use the lowest quality ingredients, the quickest manufacturing processes, um, circumventing safeguards. Um, sometimes they will make drugs for what are called ROW markets, rest of world markets. They'll make them in different manufacturing plants or in different areas of a plant where they don't have those safeguards in place. Um, and, you know, the typical standard for good manufacturing practices is if there's anything wrong with a batch of drugs, if there's a, you know, impurity spikes, you discard those batches, right? They're not fit for human consumption. And that happens all the time in an ethical manufacturing plant. But in many of these plants, they're never discarding batches because there's always a market they can sell it to. Um, so there's always a market that's not going to check. Um, what's really incredible about this is that there are many American consumers facing, you know, high drug prices. They think to themselves, hey, I'm going to travel to India. I'm going to travel to Vietnam. Why don't I be a smart consumer and buy drugs over there because they're cheaper? But that's really misguided because the drugs are of different quality and they're getting, they would be getting a lesser quality drug in a different market. This, I mean, I, your book is incredibly important and I think it's really important to read, but it's also horrifying <laughs> uh, because, you know, you'd like to believe that the drugs that you're taking are, are fine and that they're okay. And it's even more horrifying to know that there are companies willing to let non-U.S. people suffer even mm -hmm. more. Um, I just, I was just wondering, you've done all of this reporting. You got a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests um, for documents from the FDA. What do you think it is that drives companies to behave this way and also drives people to just kind of let it keep happening? Well, first of all, um, people have let it keep happening because they don't know it's happening. So that's the first problem. And, you know, this book essentially took me 10 years of reporting because I was trying to connect all these dots globally, which is very difficult to do, you know, um, so this is not a simple thing to understand. Uh, and I think, you know, part of the reason it's gone on for so long is because nobody knew what was happening or many people didn't know what was happening. Um, as to the question of why companies behave this way, I mean, it's horrible to say, but profit, you know, they, it's remarkable, but, you know, you think drug companies are in this to help patients get better. Um, not so necessarily. So, I mean, the book chronicles an American executive uh, who joined Rambaxi. She she was a scientist. She became very concerned about the quality of the HIV drugs that Rambaxi was selling to Africa and raised this in a conference call with the company's top executives. Um, the medical director of the company was on that call. And he said on that phone call, who cares? It's just blacks dying. Oh, you know, I mean, oh. you one it, you know, the mind boggles, right? Why are you in this business? And um, these are profit driven companies, you know, some some drug companies hang up on the wall. Quality is the most important thing. Never compromise quality. Rambaxi was a company that had the profit goals 
for the company hanging up on the wall so that every employee knew that the company's number one priority was to reach, you know, a billion in global sales by a certain date. And that creates a very different set of behaviors. Now, your book is, you know, has a lot of terrible things that happen with generic drugs. Um, you know, there are suicides and there was a woman finding a live bug in her pill <laughs> that was mm-hmm. still wiggling. And then there's, mm-hmm. you know, bits of glass. Do we know, like, is there an idea of the scope of this problem? Do we know how, how big it is? Because, you know, I, I have taken generic drugs. I still do. And most of the time when I look down at my pills, I don't see a bug. So <laughs> do we know what the scope of the problem is? You know, this is very hard to do. Um, we don't know the scope of the problem. I quested for data, and there's not good data. Um, what we do know is that generic, our, the U.S. drug supply, for example, is 90% generic, and the majority of that medicine is coming from overseas. 40% of it alone is coming from India. 80% of the active ingredient in all our drugs, brand or generic, is coming from overseas, principally China and India. Um, you know, and then once we look at the fraudulent conduct in these plants, we begin to get a sense of the scope. So as an example of that, I chronicle in the book the story of Peter Baker, who's a young FDA investigator who got amazingly good at looking in the computer systems of these plants. By doing that, he figured out that the companies, the plants were running these hidden laboratory operations where where they were pre-testing the drugs, trying to figure out if they would pass specifications and then altering the tests so that uh, the drugs passed. Right. And he, even though all of that data was deleted in the computer systems, he found the, the trail of metadata and was able to piece it together. He found this kind of fraud in four-fifths of the plants that he inspected in China and India. That's like four-fifths of about almost 90 plants over the course of four years, right? So not all it of these is, com- companies, this is not just Renbaxi. These are, these are other, country, other, other companies in other countries as well. This is industry-wide. These were industry-wide practices. And, you know, one of the things that I set out to figure out in the book is, was this just Renbaxi? Was Renbaxi this crazy outlier like the worst drug company ever? Or, or did the practices at Renbaxi reflect uh, practice in the generic drug industry largely. And what I found out is that Rambaxi is not really an outlier, that this is how these companies are uh, engaging in manufacturing. And I wanted to ask, you know, much of your book is specifically about a single company. It's a deep dive into the dealings of Mm -hmm. Rambaxi. That company is Indian. Almost Mm -hmm. all the people involved are also Indian. Mm-hmm. You are not Indian, to be mm-hmm. blunt. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and there are notes in the book about how culture in India might have contributed to the problems mm-hmm. at the company. Also, I mean, the heroes in the book tend to be handsome white guys like Peter well, Baker. I, I, I wouldn't agree with that. I Dinesh Tucker Ta- is the clear hero of this book. He is a whistleblower and he is Indian. So, so I, but did you worry about how that might did you did you worry about how this portrayal might come across? Well, you know, my first obligation is to expose the truth of what I'm finding. So that is, you know, my number one goal. But on the other hand, you know, sure, I was concerned about cultural sensitivity issues. And I think that the book does explain there are a lot of factors at play here. Um, there are, there are, um, you know, my, my reporting is full of whistleblowers from inside these plants. All those whistleblowers who reached out to me are Indian. They are concerned about public health. 
you know, but they're in a very different system than in the U.S., right? There's a caste system in India. There is a very top-down management style. You know, if you, there is very little mechanism for raising concerns with your boss. There is a culture of doing what you're told. Um, and there are also no legal protections for whistleblowers. You know, whistleblowers in India do not live very long. Um, they are often killed for speaking out. So they're in a really perilous system. And it's not like they have an effective regulator that they can go to. I mean, the Indian drug regulators have long been looked at as sort of in the pocket of the industry, um, that their job is more to protect the industry than to protect patients. You know, so... Um, so there is a sense in these companies from the top down that they can operate with impunity and they're not really going to be stopped. Um, so it's, you know, and that is not to say, uh, and they're also, well, let me add this. They don't fear surprise inspections from their own regulators, right? They're not, they're not facing the chance of an unannounced inspection from their own regulators, you know? That's something that U.S. companies face. So, you know, if you have companies with nothing to fear from regulators, uh, these kinds of practices can go unchecked. Now, you mentioned that, you know, these many of these companies are in places like India and China. There are generic drug manufacturers in the United States as well in, and, in, and in Western countries. Do you see this sort of thing in the West as well? So it's interesting you should mention that because I just published an article yesterday in Stat, Stat News, that looks at some of this data. And what the data shows is that, yes, there are data integrity issues in U.S. companies and European countries, but the prevalence is much higher in Indian and Chinese companies. Um, and, you know, one possible reason for that is that they are really behind the curve as far as having a unevolved or developed regulatory system. We've been at this a lot longer than they have. Our companies have been regulated a lot longer than their companies have. And so, you know, regulated companies, um, if they're paying attention, will develop a quality culture, right, in which everything is organized around guaranteeing the quality of the product. And that takes many years to develop. So, you know, there can be cultural differences in that respect as well. Um, I also wanted to ask, you mentioned earlier that your book took 10 years um, mm -hmm. <laughs> of, of insane amounts of work. Um, mm -hmm. Why? Why did it take so long? So <laughs> the, you know, the first, so I reported and wrote magazine articles about this topic for about five years. And that effort culminated in a 10,000 word article in Fortune magazine that was about Rembaxi. Um, when I started that reporting, you know, I had a very established track record as an investigative journalist in the U.S. reporting on public health and pharma issues. Uh, I had lots of sources in this country. But as I started reporting on this, it became very clear that the bigger story was overseas, you know, what was in India and China. So there's this question about how was I as a U.S. journalist with no overseas infrastructure, how was I going to uncover this story? Um, and so from, you know, after I published the Fortune magazine article in 2013, that's when my work on the book project specifically began. Uh, and that took five more years. Uh, so for a total of 10. Uh, and really, it was the effort of traveling to different continents, building up sources, you know, hiring journalists to help me in these other countries. I went to Africa, I went to China. Um, uh, so and then to take this massive information and put it into a narrative uh, book form. Uh, none of that, needless to say, is easy. Absolutely. I also was wondering, you know, you mentioned 
you had to do a lot of travel, you had to develop a lot of sources. You've reported some really shocking things about some very, very rich people and very mm-hmm. rich companies. Do you mm-hmm. do you worry somebody's going to sue you? <laughs> oh, sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were a lot of risks. There were a lot of hazards for this project. Um, you know, ultimately, your best defense is that everything that you're reporting is accurate. It's supported by multiple sources and documents and that you've given the person you're writing about an opportunity to respond and that you're fair in what you report. So, you know, at every moment I followed all those rules and uh, no one has to be. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And also, you know, after reading your book, I have to say I, I am tempted to never take a generic drug again, but insurance will not necessarily cover the brand name. Um, do you still take generic drugs after all this? I do. I have to. I mean, I think most people do. Um, you know, because of what I know, um, there are companies I trust more than other companies. Um, and so I try to get switched. Um, what I have uh, for those who are interested on my website, I have a guide to investigating your own drugs where I walk people through, you know, what they can pay attention to, what they can figure out, what to do if they feel like their drugs aren't working, how to switch to a different manufacturer. Um, you know, I think that the problem is we're, we're all in this boat together, right? I mean, we, I am not, you know, the industry said I'm anti-generic. It's the, it's furthest from the truth. You know, um, we need generic drugs. Our health systems need them, but we need them to be good. I actually wanted to follow up on that because there was, um, a review of your book in the Washington post, uh, by Jeremy Green, who is a doctor who has also written a book Mm -hmm. about generic drugs. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and he was actually concerned that your book would be a gift to the brand name drug industry. Right. Um, so a couple of things about that. Um, I've heard that concern, uh, broached, uh, and it's certainly a concern that was on my mind as I was reporting and writing the book. Um, you know, brand name companies are definitely not immune from fraud and they are not blameless. And part of the reason that we are in this situation is because of the crazy pricing schemes of brand name drugs that have pushed us into the arms of these low cost providers overseas. You know, meanwhile, the brand companies are getting their active ingredients from many of the same plants that the generic companies are. So we are all in this global system together. Some of the brand companies actually own generic companies or they're making their own generics. Um, so, you know, at this point, there is not a kind of hard and fast distinction even between brand companies and generic companies. Um, you know, but what we can say is that there have got to be incentives for quality manufacturing in this space. And right now there aren't because we're all just driving to the lowest cost as a way of fleeing those highest cost manufacturers. So I don't see the brand companies as blameless in this at all. I see this as part of an interconnected system that has to be fixed holistically. And I also wanted to ask about the role of the FDA in this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the FDA did end up prosecuting Renbaxi. They, you know, ended up paying a fine that was in global terms, not a very big one. Has the FDA changed anything about its procedures since this all went down? Not really. Not really. I mean, the the FDA has not fundamentally rethought how it is inspecting and regulating drugs in this global system. And that rethinking needs to take place. So right now we have ongoing congressional 
inquiries into a number of these issues. And there was actually a hearing yesterday. There probably will be another one coming up. Um, and, you know, often regulators and definitely the FDA, they don't fundamentally rethink things until they're forced to do that. And they're either forced by some kind of health catastrophe where they're forced by Congress. Um, so I would say that's where we are at the moment. I was going to ask, you know, that it seems that there is kind of a failure here of the system at, at many different mm-hmm. levels. There's a brand name failure. There's an oversight failure. There's generic issues. What does a better system in your mind look like? So fundamentally, that system would, we would switch from an honor-based system where we assume that everybody is 100% interested in quality, right? And what we would have to switch to a rigorous regulatory system with all kinds of verifications built in. You end the pre-announced inspections, you do a random a systematized testing of drugs. And right now that has not happened. The FDA is reviewing company data. They're not testing these drugs. Um, so basically in a globalized world, we are demanding verification of quality. That's what has to happen in order for this to change. And what do you hope? I, I know after reading your book, I am side-eyeing my generic drugs. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I'm also, it must be said, side-eyeing my brand name drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you hope the effect of your book will be? Because I wouldn't want anyone to stop taking a necessary medication. Right. You know, because of this. Um, but it's very clear that, that something needs to change. What do you hope the effect of your book is going to be? So, you know, number one, to educate consumers right? I mean, at the moment, consumers go to a pharmacy, they don't even look at who's making their drugs. They don't look at that because they don't think they need to, right? The FDA has told us that there is no difference between a brand and a generic. There is no difference uh, between different generics. Um, Furthermore, doctors, most doctors don't really think about this as an issue. When they're confronted with a patient who was stabilized and then becomes unstable, they're not necessarily thinking, well, was it a medication change, right? And that needs to be part of the thought process, too. Um, I would love to see way more transparency on this whole system. You know, the Klieg lights turned on. Why do we know where our cereal comes from? Why do we know where our shirt is made? And we don't know that about our drugs. Why don't we have country of origin labeling for the active ingredient and the finished drug. Um, I think that that would actually have the effect of driving manufacturing back to the U.S., right? I think there's a lot of patients who would rather have a made in the USA generic than a made in, uh, you know, Zhejiang province in China. So I think that is important too. Um, and then the FDA must overhaul its regulatory system. In, in an effort to kind of close this interview out on a little bit more of a positive note, mm-hmm. you do report on some very terrifying things, but also some of them have an almost hysterically humorous edge to them. I was wondering if you could talk about the snake in the machine. Oh, <laughs> because there was yeah. a snake. <laughs> there is a snake. Um, you know, and I am pro-snake, just not in a sterile manufacturing plant. Um, yeah, so you know, once the FDA did this sort of limited pr- pilot program in India where they stopped the pre-announced inspections, suddenly they were seeing, you know, snakes, bird infestations, um, bathrooms where the toilets had no drainage piping, Uh, So, you know, that really takes us back to Upton Sinclair in the jungle. Uh, One inspection report chronicled flies TNTC, too numerous to count. Well, my effort to end this on a lighter note was a total failure. Catherine, this is a hugely (laughs) important book. 
<laughs> Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to learn more about Catherine Eban and her book, Bottle of Lies, The Inside Story of the Generic Drug Boom, we've linked to more information on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. And come on, while you're there, subscribe, listen to all our stuff, maybe leave us a review if you're in the mood, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and tell us your generic drug stories. And if you're feeling generous from all your uh, generic drug savings, there's a link to our Patreon page where you can help us out if you're so inclined with a monthly donation. We are listener supported and any little bit helps to support the podcasters who work so hard to bring you this show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 